people, hello there! Welcome back for the continuation of our segment on clinical assessment. You heard about testing specific neurocognitive domains in part 1, and here we are back to cover abstracts that look at the big picture in assessing cognitive function. We're presenting 8 abstracts published in February 2022, perfect for you if you're interested in tracking cognitive decline for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment, or dementia in general. Stay with me. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hello everyone, Sarah Luedi here, back for part 2 of our segment on clinical assessment in Alzheimer's disease. In the first part, I presented abstracts published in February 2022 that focus on certain neurocognitive domains for the detection of mild cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's, or dementia. In part 2, I slotted abstracts that look at the bigger picture by assessing cognition without zooming in on a particular domain. or suggest some considerations in our approach. Before I jump into the abstracts, I do have to give a few disclaimers, as per usual, so you know what you can expect from us. As a reminder, we do not read or discuss the content of the papers. We rely solely on the abstracts to give you a brief overview of the news, hoping this can help you refine your literature search. We spare you the trouble of searching abstracts on Alzheimer's disease and categorizing them and We hope that our podcast helps you combine this task with more pleasant ones. Maybe you're out and about, enjoying a nice walk in the sun, or lying on your couch and giving your eyes a break from the screen. Or maybe you're cooking or cleaning your place. We really hope you find our podcast useful and accessible. But if we can improve, please let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you on social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. We have a big team of volunteers who care deeply about good psychom, and we do this on top of our work, our studies, and our personal lives. I have to give them a huge shout-out, and especially Alan Kosh, who manages the internal workings of Aminder, Anusha Kamesh, who manages the editing team, Laran Bassi, who manages the bibliography team, as well as our board of directors, and that will be Ellen Rowe, Nyla Coleman, Ellen Kosh, and myself, who co-founded this podcast. Now on to the meat of this episode, starting with a short section on considerations and limitations in testing, starting with abstract number one titled, Education-Based Cutoffs for Cognitive Screening of Alzheimer's Disease, published in Dementia and Geriatric Cognitive Disorders, that's the name of the journal, by first author Elenius, last author Hockanen, And uh, this is the result of a huge collaboration. So there are lots of authors on this paper. I'll just cite a few of the affiliations here. We've got the University of Helsinki in Finland, Karolinska Institutet in Sweden, Kuopio University Hospital in uh, Finland as well, uh, University of Eastern Finland, Imperial College London, and Laxo Hospital. Before I start, I'd like to share that when I read this abstract, I was reminded of a video I saw. um, It was a TED Talk presented by James Flynn. 
Have you heard of the Flynn effect? It's based on the observation that our IQ scores are increasing in each generation. In his TED Talk, James Flynn stipulates that we're getting better at answering IQ test questions because our education values abstract thought. So each generation is being trained to do better on IQ tests. Can the same apply to the assessment tools that we use to test cognition? With more and more people getting post-secondary education and knowing how this can impact their performance on cognitive testing, can we trust the accuracy of tools that were developed a long time ago? This is a question that the authors of this paper try to elucidate. They look at the impact of education, age, and gender on a battery of tests called CIRAD-NB, or, in other words, the consortium of it to establish a registry for Alzheimer's disease neuropsychological battery. They use univariate GLM to compare the scores on this battery between close to 400 Alzheimer's disease patients and close to 2,000 controls. And they try to adjust the cutoffs so as to improve the test accuracy after accounting for the factors that I listed. Now, of education, age, and gender, which do you think best predicts performance on this test? Oh, I think I gave it away with my intro on education. Uh, so that's what it was. It was education. And furthermore, they found that correcting cutoff scores to account for this made the test more accurate in distinguishing between Alzheimer's disease and healthy controls. This correction can prove very useful in refining our diagnostic approaches, especially with the increase in the proportion of educated individuals in our testing pool. That was a consideration to include a criterion during our assessment, but in the process of diagnosing an illness, we do need to exclude other causes. For Alzheimer's disease, since our clinical picture usually orients us towards mild cognitive impairment or dementia, we would need to consider other etiologies such as vascular dementia or frontotemporal dementia. Mind you, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, but some signs and symptoms may raise a red flag. For example, personality and behavioral changes, while possible in Alzheimer's disease, are more common in frontotemporal dementia. Or if a patient is taking multiple medications and presents with an acute onset of confusion and memory impairment, you may be more inclined to consider delirium than dementia, knowing that for dementia would be seeing a more gradual progression over a longer period of time. It's not always clear-cut and easy to make these distinctions, as some signs overlap between different diseases. For example, if someone starts to have fixed false beliefs that conflict with reality, as in delusions, you may consider psychosis or frontotemporal dementia or even Alzheimer's disease. This is not super well understood in the context of dementia, and this is a topic of interest of the authors of the next paper, titled Examining the Presence and Nature of Delusions in Alzheimer's Disease and Frontotemporal Dementia Syndromes. It was published by Kumfor, first author, last author is Landon Romero, and you'll find it published in International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. This is the result of a collaboration between at the University of Sydney in New South Wales and Australia, Macquarie University, and University of East Anglia in the UK. Now, the authors of paper number two administer neuropsychological tests and MRI in numbers varying between 30 and 150 participants in each of the following groups, Alzheimer's disease, 
behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, primary progressive aphasia, motor neuron disease, cortical basal syndrome, and progressive supranuclear palsy. They find that about 18% of those with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia had delusions, compared to 11.8% in those with Alzheimer's disease, so 18 and 11.8. These are a little higher than the average across groups being 10.8%, suggesting that delusions are not uncommon in dementia. Those with more delusions had lower scores on the Edinburgh's cognitive exam, and more specifically when tested for orientation, attention, and memory. These are three neurocognitive domains. The authors found this concerning, as delusions may confound diagnosis for dementia. Therefore, they propose that we make an effort to identify them to avoid misdiagnosis. These were the two papers I slotted under this mini-section on special considerations in testing. Now before we move on to our next section, here's a did-you-know plug on psychometrics to help you make sense of some of the numbers that I'll be reporting when available in the abstract. If you're familiar with test sensitivity, specificity, and predictive value, feel free to jump ahead to the next section titled The Big Picture. We have timestamps for the different sections in the show notes. Back in episodes 219 and 220, I spoke at length about test sensitivity and test specificity. In short, test sensitivity refers to how good your test is at detecting a disease, so true positives. The specificity, on the other hand, is measured based on how well it excludes those who do not have the disease. So, in other words, true negatives. These values are inherent to the test and help the administrator determine if the test is appropriate. In episode 233, I introduced the likelihood ratio, a value that tells you whether the results of a diagnostic test will change the probability that someone has a disease. In practice, We rely on different parameters for diagnosis and management. It starts with history taking, which is based on the interview with the patient. We may also heavily rely on collateral information from loved ones, caregivers, and sometimes the care team. This may be the most important part of the assessment. Then we move on to the physical exam, which may include testing cranial nerves, reflexes, um, motor function, gait, etc. All of this provides you with a clinical picture and an inkling on the diagnosis, or a list of diagnoses, which we call a differential. Based on the information you gathered, you may have an idea of the likelihood that someone may have, say, Alzheimer's disease. Whatever test you add from here, you want it to make a difference, so you're not wasting the patient's time or confusing yourself with inconclusive data. This is why you want to pick a test that is going to make a difference in your deductions. Otherwise, why even bother? The positive and negative likelihood ratios of a test may help you decide. And last, I spoke about the positive predictive value of a test back in episode 234, and I'll remind you that this is the likelihood that a patient who tested positive actually has the disease. Now, this brief intro, I hope this gives you an appreciation for the values reported in some abstracts. I'll make sure I uh, mention them when they come up, and this will be relevant for abstracts 5 and 8 in this episode. So, got a bit of time to let this percolate until then. Are you ready to move on? Alright, but first, a little break from my voice. 
I'm Lara from the bibliography team here at Aminder. Did you know the episode you're listening to has a numbered bibliography that you can find in our show notes or directly on our website? And all of our episodes come with their own bibliography so that you can easily find and look into the papers that interest you. If you're also interested in keeping up to date with scientific publications in Alzheimer's research and working in collaboration with other teammates, we would love it if you consider joining us. Send your CV and an indication of what you're interested in doing with us to Aminder podcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back. Let's jump right into this section of this episode with abstracts that look at the bigger picture by tracking general changes in cognition. So without focusing on a specific neurocognitive domain, those were learning and memory, language, executive function, social cognition, attention, and perceptual motor function. So abstract number three is titled Quantifying Longitudinal Cognitive Resilience to Alzheimer's Disease and Other Neuropathologies. It was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia, by Wagner and Capuano, who are affiliated with the University of Bordeaux in France and Rush University Medical Center in Chicago in the U.S. Cognitive resilience is exactly what it sounds like, a measure of how our cognitive abilities resist pathology. Sometimes this is looked at at a distinct time. For example, given the degree of illness, are we doing better, worse, or as expected? One may also look at the changes in cognitive function over time and compare the slope to the one that we may expect in a given disease. In this paper, the authors compare these existing approaches to a new method. They propose to use the mean of differences in cognitive function in a person to what would be expected marginally over time. Over 1,200 participants with various neuropathologies, they find all the cognitive resilience measures correlate with neuroticism and depressive symptoms. They find that their more encompassing and longitudinal approach yields a stronger association with risk factors than single measures of cognitive resilience. So that was short and sweet for abstract three. Now for number four, paper titled Validity of the Web-Based Self-Directed Neurocognitive Performance Test in Mild Cognitive Impairment. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by Doris Boemi and Devanand, who are affiliated with Duke University School of Medicine, at Columbia University Medical Center, New York State Psychiatry Institute, and the City University of New York, all in the U.S. If you've administered the Mini Mental State Exam, or MMSE, or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA, You may be well familiar with the sheet that you fill as you go, old style, pen and paper. And if, like me, you grew up writing notes on a copybook, this may feel comfortable. But let's admit it, it's a little archaic today, isn't it? 
why not harness technology to make the process easier and more accessible to both providers and patients? This next paper looks at the Neurocognitive Performance Test, or NCPT, which is web-based and self-directed, and is intended for testing cognitive domains. The authors want to compare its efficacy at detecting mild cognitive impairment compared to existing and more established assessment tools such as the MMSE and the Alzheimer's Disease Assessment Scale Cognition Subscale, or ADAS-COG. They find that their web-based battery, correlated with the ADAS-COG, trails A and B learning memory tests, as well as the University of California San Diego uh, Performance-Based Skills Assessment and Functional Activities Questionnaire, measures of daily functioning. Darn, why do these assessment tools have such long names? Okay, they don't report on the sample size, but they acknowledge some limitations to their study, such as, they say, a small sample size and not having a control group. With this said, they believe that web-based approaches hold potential in a clinical and research settings. We're not drifting away from technology just yet, and honestly, I'm not surprised that there are more than one paper on this this month, or any month. Why shouldn't we harness technological advances to facilitate access to care and standardized assessment? I may be biased, but I'd love to hear from you if you have used software or computerized tools in your work. What advantages are you finding in them? On the flip side, what are some challenges or limitations that you're encountering in switching from pen and paper to computerized tools? And this paper addresses another topic I'm very interested in. That is early detection. There is a lot on this in research, but unfortunately, at the clinical level, we still rely on assessment tools that detect cognitive decline a little too late. To add to this, people don't usually come with concerns with memory loss unless it's affecting their functioning, or maybe there's been an incident, like getting lost, or a flood from letting the tab go, or something like a fire. So once we conduct the interview, we combine the clinical picture to the results on neurocognitive assessment tools such as the MMSE or MOCA, and then at best we get a probable diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Our most definite approach to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease is postmortem with histology to detect the two hallmarks of this disease, amyloid plaques and tau tangles. This can be useful for research purposes or even to provide some closure and understanding to the family of the patient, but this doesn't help for interventions, does it? Imaging tools such as CT scans can help us see brain atrophy, and depending on the area being affected, we may infer this or that pathology. So for Alzheimer's disease, for example, We'd look for atrophy in the hippocampus, but by the time those changes are visible, the patient may be very far into the disease progression. There's evidence that amyloid protein forms aggregates even decades before symptoms appear. Positron emission tomography, or PET, is a more sensitive tool in vivo, especially if you're using tracers to detect amyloid plaques like Pittsburgh Compound B. However, this is super expensive and, to my knowledge, not used routinely in British Columbia at least. There are efforts towards developing detection tools for blood and CSF biomarkers that can bypass these limitations. But that is a topic for a different episode. I encourage you to check the bibliography on fluid biomarkers or Ellen Rowe's episode on vascular changes in Alzheimer's disease. 
Another approach would be through more sensitive cognitive assessment tools or screening methods, which is what we're getting at with the next paper. And that'll be paper number five titled Diane, a new first level computerized tool assessing memory, attention, and visuospatial processing to detect early pathological cognitive decline. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by Devita and Guariglia, and they're affiliated with Sapienza, University of Rome, and IRCCS Santa Lucia, both in Italy. Here, the authors seek to develop a screening tool to detect neurocognitive decline early on. In fact, they noticed that cognitive decay could be detected incidentally by mistake during neuropsychological examinations of close to 300 community-dwelling adults in an educational event that was ran in the past. In light of these observations, these researchers present a battery of tests that is administered on a tablet where they assess attention, executive function, and memory with a focus on visual-spatial memory. They call this tool Diane, short for Diagnosis of Neurocognitive Disease. They do emphasize that the novelty in this doesn't lie only in the telematic form, but also the battery of tests itself. I would have liked to see some numbers of sensitivity, specificity, or other psychometrics in the abstract, but you and I will have to check the paper for these details. All I can say from the abstract is that the authors claim that this tool compares in validity to existing paper and pencil tests. Okay. They also list the benefits of this approach being faster and more economical than other assessments. A challenge is with training and computer literacy, but I believe this is getting better as more and more people across the age continuum are becoming more comfortable with using computers and tablets and telephones. Yes, there is a place for telephones in healthcare, as we have seen through the wider use and access to telemedicine during the pandemic. Not a gratuitous mention. This is how I'm transitioning to our next abstract titled Crosswalk Between the Mini Mental State Examination and Telephone Interview for Cognitive Status, takes 27, 30, and 40. So, this is paper number six. It was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia by Lafka, Yu, uh, and Lagdawala, and they're all affiliated with the University of Southern California in the US. The authors of this paper present a bridge between the MMSE and different versions of the telephone interview for cognitive status. They test their tool in over 1,800 participants in the United States, aged 65 or more, with and without cognitive problems. These adults had partaken in an assessment back in 2016, included the MMSE and TICS, and that's short for Telephone Interview for Cognitive Status. The authors use something called equipercentile equating to develop a crosswalk between those tests, and they find that the version of TICS with 30 questions compares to the MMSE in a way that is different from the other TICS versions with 27 and 40 items. Different how? That's likely more clear in the paper itself. In the abstract, they also don't report testing the validity of this approach, but they suggest that we take different cognitive scales into account when assessing these crosswalks. I took a quick look at a version of the TICS, and it looks quite similar to the MMSE. I see questions like, who is the president of the United States right now? With your finger, tap five times on the part of the phone that you speak into. Or, say this, 
Methodist Epi Episcopal? Me what? Okay, I can't. <laughs> Sorry. This is all done on the phone after checking whether the participant needs hearing aids or is hearing the questions properly. I have to admit, there are questions on the MMSE and the text that I would not get right. Like, what is today's date? I don't know what's today most of the time. Um, or say this, no ifs, ands, and or buts. Or a question like, what is the opposite of generous? This would take me a minute. Stingy? Yeah, okay. My friends and I speculate that people who, like me, don't speak English as a first language may find some questions more difficult. And yes, absolutely, understanding the language is super important for these assessments. And this is why we need studies like the next one, where we evaluate a translation of a test. So paper number 7 is titled The Tuoko Version of the Clock Drawing Test, a Validation Study in the Greek Population published by Tafiadis and Konitsiotis, uh, so these are the first and last author. They're affiliated with University of Ioannina in Greece and European University Cyprus in Cyprus. And you'll find this paper published in the Journal of Clinical Experimental Neuropsychology. Before we start, I should clarify that Tuoko is the name of a person. It is one of the researchers who developed a short version of the clock drawing test back in 1992, along with Haji Stavropoulos, Miller, and BT. Tuoko appears in multiple publications since that sought to validate this time-saving tool. The authors of the present paper, Tafiadis and colleagues, proposed to assess this uh, tool in the Greek population. This means testing its validity and figuring out the cutoff score, as in, at what point do we think that the test taker has cognitive impairment? They tested in over 130 participants who are either in good cognitive health or have Parkinson's or have Alzheimer's. They contrast the scores on this version of the clock drawing test to their results in other neurocognitive tests, such as the MMSE, the abbreviated mental test score, the Arizona Battery for Communication Disorders of Dementia, as well as other tests like Instrumental Activities of Daily Living, the Neuropsychiatric Inventory, and the Geriatric Depression Scale 15. They found that the clock drawing test significantly distinguished between the three groups with an internal consistency of 0.83. Those with Alzheimer's disease scored the lowest, and the authors estimated that the cutoff to detect cognitive impairment on this test is 4.0. The same value can be used to distinguish Alzheimer's patients from those who have no cognitive impairment. As for distinguishing Alzheimer's from Parkinson's, the cutoff would be 3.0. The authors give more details for the differences between different subgroups, and you don't have to go far for them if you're interested. They are in the abstract itself. They also find a high correlation between the clock drawing test scores and those of the other neurocognitive tests that I listed earlier. In conclusion, the Greek version of the Tuoko clock drawing test shows validity and potential in screening for cognitive impairment. And if you haven't heard of the clock drawing test before, it is quite simple. The participant is asked to draw a clock, and they're given specific instructions as to the time that needs to be shown with the arms of the clock. So for example, 10 past 10. This helps to test not only visual-spatial skills, but also the person's ability to plan and therefore 
the executive function. It's used clinically, sometimes in conjunction with the MMSE. Another test you may hear about in my episodes is the Edinburgh's Cognitive Examination. This is a 20-minute screening test for different cognitive domains. It originally included elements of the MMSE, but these were removed in 2001 when the MMSE was no longer openly accessible. Some attribute this change to a general effort to make the Edinburgh's Cognitive Exam more specific, and you'll find different revised versions online, such as the one introduced in the next abstract. And this is the last one of this episode, paper number eight, titled Brazilian Version of Edinburgh's Cognitive Examination Revised in the Differential Diagnosis of Alzheimer's Disease and Behavioral Variant Frontotemporal Dementia. You'll find it published in the Archives and Clinical Neuropsychology by Amaral Carvalho and uh, Caramelli, who are affiliated with different centers in Brazil, including Faculdade de Medicina de Universidade de São Paulo, Faculdade de Medicina da Universidade Federal de Minas Gerais, and Ciencias e Humanidades de Universidade de São Paulo. Pardon me if I mispronounce those. If you're new to the field, you may be wondering about the distinction between dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and frontotemporal dementia. Dementia is an umbrella term for a syndrome that manifests as a loss in cognition, which interferes with our functioning. This is not only trouble with learning and remembering, but it can also manifest as problems with language or reasoning. These impairments can have different etiologies, and the most common one is Alzheimer's disease, claiming 60-80% to of dementia cases. This is perhaps the reason why there may be some confusion around the distinction between them. People with Alzheimer's typically have trouble with memory that affects their function, so dementia. But not everyone with dementia has Alzheimer's. Other causes of dementia include vascular problems, that could be the result of repeated mini-strokes, or Parkinson's dementia, which develops with time in people with Parkinson's disease, or frontotemporal dementia, where the pathology is seen in the frontal and temporal lobes and therefore affects personality and behavior. On paper, this seems all fine and clear. But as you may imagine, things are not so clear-cut in real life. There is an overlap between these etiologies, and it is tricky to narrow down on one when we see a patient in the clinic. So developing tools that help us distinguish between Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia, for example, can really help. The Addenbrook's Cognitive Examination Revised is a contender that has been validated, and I cover papers on it every month. But here, the authors seek to validate it in a Brazilian sample. They do this in over 100 participants who are either cognitively healthy or diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's disease or mild behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia. Note how they say probable Alzheimer's disease, because remember, we can't know for sure until we look at the histology. Anyways, as a comparison to the Brazilian version of the ACE-R, or Edinburgh's Cognitive Examination Revised, they use the Mattis Dementia Rating Scale, the Neuropsychiatric Inventory, and, oh gosh, this is long, the Verbal Fluency plus Language to Orientation plus Name and Address Delayed Recall Memory, or VLOM. That's easier, VLOM. They report that 80 is the score cutoff to detect Alzheimer's disease or dementia in general, and 79 is the cutoff for behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. Pretty close. 
As for distinguishing between Alzheimer's disease and behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia, this Brazilian version held in 86.5% sensitivity, 71.4% specificity, 72.7% positive predictive value, and 85.7% negative predictive value. The authors find the psychometric values encouraging for the diagnostic potential of the Brazilian ACE-R in distinguishing between Alzheimer's disease and behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, or for detecting either. And that's a wrap. We made it till the end, you and I. Thanks for sticking with me through two episodes on clinical testing and Alzheimer's disease. Did any of the papers stick out to you? What are your highlights? If a paper caught your interest, you can find the bibliography for this in the show notes, which was kindly generated by Laura and Bassi. If you go on our site, aminder.com, and click on Bibliography at the top of the page, you'll be redirected to our drive where we keep all past bibliographies. We update it as we release episodes and also add the bibliographies for the topics that we do not cover. Every month, we download all the abstracts with the word Alzheimer in them, categorize them into over 38 categories, and assign those categories to hosts like me, depending on the area of interest and expertise. Naturally, many topics do not get covered, and we would love to recruit more people who care about Psycom and want an extra incentive to keep up with the news in their field. Aside from the experience, we also get to interact with scientists from all around the world. We have team members from different time zones, from Canada, the US, Germany, Turkey, the UK, working consistently to bring you episodes three times a week. So thank you to the amazing team that we have. Special thanks to the sorting team who go through over 600 abstracts a month to sort them into categories. And that would be Christy Yu, Ben Cornish, Ellen Dubchak, Rochelle Selian, Kira Tosevsky, and Ellen Rowe. The beautiful music you hear now is the making of Anusha Kamesh, one of our regular hosts and the manager of our wonderful editing team. You can find her work on AK Music on YouTube or on SoundCloud under her name. And I do have to give a special shout out to my co-manager, Ellen Kosh, who coordinates the schedule and internal communications. And last but not least, thank you for following us and listening to our episodes. I hope you found this podcast useful and accessible. Best of luck if this is exam season for you. Until next time.